on this season, we'll explore our most ingrained beliefs, delusions, and archetypes, the ways that cognitive dissonance shapes our culture, and how our reality is created by the stories we tell. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. So what are they saying? We're going to ban hamburgers and Americans are never going to have a barbecue and flip a hamburger again? They want to take away your hamburgers. No more steak. I guess government-forced veganism is in order. I love cooking on the grill because that's what makes me a real man, among other awesome things. On a camping trip in Washington State in my early 20s, I caught a shimmering rainbow trout, something I'd done all through my childhood. I cleaned it the way I was taught, saw its bright blood on the knife, all its complicated insides, its little red heart that looked like a small polished stone. I was pretty excited to present this dinner, to share this hard-won bounty with anyone who wanted it skillfully cooked in tinfoil over the campfire. But when I returned, to my surprise, many of the campers in our large group were shocked at my callousness, telling me that they themselves could never kill a living thing like I did. But at the same time, an orange-red liquid was dripping down everyone's lips, the messy ground hamburger meat of a sloppy joe. When I attempted to point out this irony, that they were eating meat that had suffered a great deal more than the fish I was holding, even though they didn't have to see it, a man said to the group with a hearty laugh, That's the beauty of America. There are few things more quintessentially American than a hearty dad prodding a flat circle of ground beef with a spatula, sweating under a baseball cap in the early July sun. Other men lean over the sizzling burgers, studying them like an ancient text, offering their interpretations of when they must be flipped. It's the one and only time that a lot of men will cook the entire year, practicing their dominion over all the animals of the land and sky, as the first book of the Bible seemingly promised to humans. Our cultural culinary contribution to the world at large, hamburgers have also always been a potent metaphor, a symbol for what America has meant since its beginnings. In this episode, we'll learn about the colonizers who moved west into new indigenous territories and systematically killed millions of buffalo as a way to control the native tribes. Performances of such hunts were immortalized by flamboyant actors like Buffalo Bill, helping the narrative of a manly wild west, the continued manifest destiny. We'll see how European cattle came to replace the buffalo and the early meatpacking corporations that began the frightening task of factory farming, changing our relationship to food and animals forever. We'll explore our flip-flopping relationship to beef due to events like the 1898 beef scandal, the rebranding of burgers by White Castle and other fast food chains, the rising connection of heart disease in the 1970s, and the E. coli and mad cow panics of the 80s and 90s. 
And then we'll check out the modern manifestation of the symbol of the hamburger in the right wing's War on Burgers, a direct response to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her Green New Deal that presented climate change as a very important matter and highlighted the role of factory farming in that problem. You might be thinking, Chelsea, are hamburgers really a hysteria? But this season, I'm thinking of our ingrained cultural practices and traditions and symbols like the hamburger that are key examples to how we ignore reality and how we tell stories about the things that we want. We feel deeply, emotionally, intensely attached to these symbols and archetypes for reasons that we don't quite understand. This is a season about how we deal with guilt and shame, how our brains keep us comfortable, and how that comfort isn't getting us anywhere. This is also a season where I find out some hard truths about myself as I learn more and more about the topics we're covering. I'm not here to make you feel bad, to act superior. I'm not here to shame you about eating meat. This episode is not meant as a condemnation of meat eaters or dairy lovers, but instead is about our relationship to animals and our relationship to ourselves. It's about the spirit of colonization, the American hierarchy, and the masculine identity, and about how this sandwich we're so obsessed with holds it all together. The indigenous populations, generally speaking, were hunters of the buffalo that once roamed freely on the American open plains. It's true what we learned in our elementary schools during our gentle early American history lessons. Tribes usually did use all parts of the buffalo, and they also believed these animals to be a vital part of their spiritual life, part of an ecosystem that needed to be upheld for the long-term survival of both. They were honored animals, equals, but it was also just common sense. They knew not to take too much, because when you take too much, eventually you run out. In contrast, the colonists who settled on the East Coast wanted more and more land, wanted to manifest more of that destiny. The colonists had brought over European beef cattle to provide familiar milk and meat, and as more and more arrived, they needed large amounts of space and resources to accommodate them. But there was an issue, something the colonists called the Indian problem. Along with this Indian problem was the buffalo problem, and soon they realized that these two were inextricably linked. They used a military tactic now banned called the scorched earth approach, which meant striking and stealing the resources of the adversary, usually animals and weapons. Both army and civilians alike were encouraged, either blatantly or covertly, to kill every buffalo they could. It was considered the patriotic thing to do. Politicians and military leaders knew that without the vital resource of the buffalo, the army could more easily control the indigenous populations and move them away from the conquered land and onto reservations. 
A familiar American hero named Buffalo Bill Cody, who we've all ranked beside legends like Davy Crockett and Johnny Appleseed, took this Indian and Buffalo problem as a personal challenge. A sharpshooter and former Union soldier, he allegedly roamed the West, killing more than 4,000 buffalo in just over a year. Other men would follow suit on what they considered manly outings, with the affluent sometimes also participating, standing on faraway green hills without any knowledge of buffalo hunting. Once, they caused a stampede that ended with the massive buffalo running off a cliff, still alive and writhing at the bottom of a canyon. To them, it was a game, through and through, and though some protested to the hunts, most were thrilled to contribute to the American dream, to make way for the American way. As the train industry boomed, their tracks were quickly expanded out toward the prairies of the Midwest, and commercial hunters, including Buffalo Bill, were hired to provide fresh meat to the military troops. These hunters would literally lean out of the windows of trains with their rifles, or even more cinematically, they would climb on top of the rumbling car, balancing in order to get a better shot. This was all right by the growing railway industry, who were seeking the mass deaths of the buffalo as well, as sometimes they blocked the tracks with their huge bodies for days at a time, large enough to damage the train if they were hit. Buffalo Bill and the others that followed were enshrined in pulp novels that painted a larger-than-life Wild West with its trials and promises. When he learned of his celebrity back east, Buffalo Bill decided to capitalize on what was essentially his brand, which, from pictures I looked at, included long and admittedly luscious locks with the kind of facial hair that's a mustache and a strip down the chin, a big stupid pillow-looking hat, stupid clothes, and kind of a general slimy vibe. He would, after his buffalo hunting fame reached all over the country, create vaudevillian Wild West shows, theatrical performances of his own heroics in which he played himself. He especially liked to act out those buffalo hunts and, through parody, helped create the revisionist cowboys and Indians cliches that we see to this day. Before the arrival of the Europeans, the land that would be called America supported 25 to 30 million buffalo, and by the 1890s, only 100 or so were left. Almost all of these animals had been killed as a part of the Western expansion for sport, only their hides taken and sold, the rest of the buffalo bodies scattered everywhere, left lying in the sun completely unused, pointlessly wasted, an unthinkable devastation to the indigenous who revered the buffalo as equals, as the most necessary thing to their survival. One judge living at the time remarked on how unnerving the Western Plains had become. He described them as a graveyard, quote, with so many skulls staring at a man and so many bones that newcomers felt nervous. One of the main features of Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows were called hunts. Crowds of 18,000 would watch shows three to four hours long. In these performances, they used some of the only buffalo left in the country as animal actors. 
And there he would chase them, clammy with his own narcissism, shooting his guns into the sky as the crowd cheered and cheered for this pageant of conquering. In one of the most definitive American folk songs of all time, Home, Home on the Range, a line from the 1910 version, since cut out, sums it up. The red man was pressed from this part of the West, he's likely no more to return, to the banks of Red River where seldom, if ever, their flickering campfires burn. European cattle continued to multiply in the South, especially during the Civil War when men left their ranches to fight, returning to a shock of cows, their numbers suddenly reaching 5 million. Because of the new flood of supply, beef became very cheap in the South, and ranchers were going broke. But soon the answer revealed itself. A great deal of cows were needed to feed the growing populations in the expanding Midwest. Eventually, scores of rugged cowboys wrangled their cattle, driving them hundreds of miles, learning as they went how to best control the herds. As these cowboys and their cattle came pouring into Chicago, a handful of companies immediately jockeyed to control the market, largely by exploiting immigrant labor and the local ranchers that had previously raised their cows for the local community. These meatpacking companies set up the terrifying slaughterhouses we know today that killed millions of cows every year in what amounted to the first industrial production lines, a structure that would later seriously influence Henry Ford's and then later the fast food industry. These companies began using additives and then sending this meat via train all over the country. Expanding the market, these companies were no longer interested in local beef, and all the while getting rich as hell. This industrialization of meat meant that people no longer relied on trusted butchers in their communities. They would no longer come into contact with the animals they ate. Instead, the meat arrived pre-cut, the way we see meat packaged on ice at the grocery store. The mass production of beef meant that high and low classes alike could afford it. For newcomers, it was a taste of this mythical America, the land of plenty, where anyone could become a steak-stuffed fat cat. Letters would pass between nations with correspondences like, I eat meat every day. You must be kidding, it can't be true. With its beginnings as a tough cowboy fantasy, beef was the only prepared meal that was, at least in part, a man's domain. Women were constantly reprimanded and mocked for choosing the wrong cut from a butcher or cooking the steaks incorrectly, with a New York Herald article reprinted in several other newspapers saying, that while there are plenty of men, professional and amateur, who can cook a beefsteak, it is an accomplishment which can be claimed by but a few women. More after this. And now, back to the show. The more conservative forces of America began to make alliances between the government and the rapidly growing business industry that lasts to this day. 
One such deal came during the Spanish-American War of 1898, when these companies wanted to ship out their beef for the lowest possible cost and without proper refrigeration. Under President William McKinley, the U.S. Army station in Cuba was provided chemically adulterated canned beef rations that nearly poisoned the army into defeat. The soldiers rapidly fell ill to serious food poisoning that was first thought to be caused by malaria or yellow fever. In reality, the weakened immune systems of the men made the diseases much worse. Some of the meat had rotted in the cans, turning putrid. It was often described as embalmed, with one army medical officer describing it like this. It looked well, but had an odor similar to that of a dead human body after being injected with formaldehyde. But the final nail in the coffin of Beef's early reign came when author Upton Sinclair published his famous 1906 expose of the Chicago slaughterhouse industry. Though he had desired to shine a socialist light on labor abuses faced by the majority immigrant workers, his descriptions of the horrifying conditions faced by the underpaid and sometimes mutilated employees were largely ignored. It was the description of rats running inside the machines, meats contaminated with tuberculosis, body parts crushed along with beef that got the public's attention. As Upton Sinclair put it himself, quote, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. His reports contributed to what would become the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1907, and from then on, the quality of beef would become standardized and allegedly safe. But it would take the public a while to trust the government and meat industries again, and beef would decline in popularity, at least for the time being. The early version of the hamburger was mostly associated with lower-class hangouts like circuses and fairs. But by the 1920s, the very first fast-food chain, White Castle, repackaged beef for a still-skeptical general public, hoping that middle-class clients might be persuaded to trust again. Using white as their primary design color, Founder Walter Anderson also opened up the kitchen to the public, with burgers being cooked right before their eyes. White Castle would aim for a mini-American immaculate fantasy, which included the trusted faces of their brand. The spreading franchises were instructed to hire young white men between the ages of 19 and 24. They were required to pass a physical, and their histories, including family backgrounds, were examined for good behavior. After they passed these rigorous tests, they were all required to wear the same uniform, white shirt, black tie, and a clean, white, always unstained apron. They demanded no jewelry, hair and fingernails trimmed short, and a clean-shaven face at all times. And then came the famous white paper hats, which all employees were required to wear, and then, still stain-obsessed, they were made to wear disposable paper aprons, too. White Castle provided endless white napkins, all produced by a paper manufacturing company that they themselves ran as a subsidiary. It worked, and White Castle's popularity exploded. It seemed that beef was back. And boy, was it looking good. 
They got the hamburgers I love to eat. Brown, fresh, daily, and all pure beef. From the first bird out of the best in town. The second hot and golden brown. And the milkshakes there are really slick. World War II left the country starving for good news. And in a booming post-war economy, you could say that this happiness was manufactured for Americans. Fast food became clean, predictably uniform in each location, easy to trust in its simplicity. With middle-class teenage car culture exploding in the affluent 1950s, car hops walked or roller skated out to groups of friends laughing in cars or lovers cuddling up next to each other. Like White Castle, these workers were originally clean-cut white men, but after World War II forced women to replace men in their previous jobs, they became the primary car hops. Even after the men returned, it was clear that the women were attracting more customers, likely because they were often required to dress like cheerleaders, skating joyfully out to deliver the meat that, don't worry, they didn't cook. But that meat sure looked good in the hands of a beautiful woman. Under the growing influence of psychologist Sigmund Freud, the fast food industry adopted the theories of the subconscious, using advertising methods that certainly last through to the present day. Burgers were manly, yes, but they were also safe and dependable. When McDonald's began questioning the golden arches that had become their trademark logo, a psychologist-slash-design consultant gave his Freudian opinion that the M reminded the subconscious mind of, quote, a mother's nurturing breasts. Come 1963, Ronald McDonald would become the silly and lovable clown that invited kids into a cartoon world where burgers were little bursts of colorful joy. Mega corporations continued to create bright fantasies, now for children who were a rapidly growing market. By 1979, McDonald's created the product that marked many of our childhoods, the Happy Meal, that placed toys of the moment beside hunks of ground beef inside a box made from a smile. By the mid-1980s, McDonald's were opening their iconic and admittedly awesome play places all over the nation. And as a fun little aside, as the internet exploded in the late 1990s, McDonald's invented online clubs for kids, with one character telling the children on the other side of the screen, and I kid you not, quote, Ronald McDonald is the ultimate authority on everything. More after this. If you're like me, you probably don't sleep well all the time. Honestly, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about American hysteria with thoughts racing through my head. I thought the only part of the problem was me, but since getting my hella soft set of attitude sheets, I've been getting some of the best sleep of my life. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm not super educated in fabrics. All I know is I've never been able to find sheets that feel perfect. 
One of the best things about Etitude sheets is their clean bamboo fabric recycles 98% of the water it uses, so it's the most sustainable bedding available. Right now, our listeners will get 20% off their first sheet set and free shipping. Just text AMERICAN to 64000. The only way to get 20% off of your Etitude sheets and free shipping is to text AMERICAN to 64000. You're not going to regret it when you're sleeping like a baby. And now, back to the show. During the second clean living movement of the 1970s, after some resistance, mainstream Americans were inspired by the hippies' food choices that often included a plant-based diet. But some hippies took a more extreme approach. News reports referred to them as domestic terrorists, these mildly militant animal rights groups like the Animal Liberation Front. And it's true that animal rights activists were getting more aggressive, were getting more dedicated to making Americans see the real treatment of animals. These groups used creative tactics to free animals and keep them from harm, and this led to mass anger and mass American eye rolls. The news reported on them as unhinged, unreasonable, un-American, and hysterical. Of course, it wasn't the rising calls against animal abuse that made beef suspect yet again. It was the burgeoning scientific reports and the media's coverage of red meat's link to heart disease and obesity. The decline in beef consumption was swift, just as it was after the beef scandal of 1898. The hamburger's image took several other hits throughout the next 20 years. In 1981, it was revealed that a large import of Australian beef was not 100% cow, but contained traces of horse meat that horrified the American public. Burger King did discover that their supplier had tainted meat, but for the most part, it was a simple panic. In typical fashion, this horse meat urban legend began to incorporate almost all major fast food chains, with Jack in the Box announcing Jack in the Box does not use horse meat, McDonald's saying McDonald's USA has never used horse meat in our hamburger patties, with Wendy's boasting Wendy's only uses fresh 100% North American beef in all restaurants throughout North America. We do not use any horse meat. Hamburger PR took another hit in 1993 when Jack in the Box's famous E. coli scare rocked the fast food nation. With kids getting sick, may I note, just a short drive from my childhood home in Washington state. The contamination culprit? A new promotion by Jack in the Box called the Monster Burger, which ironically used the slogan, So good, it's scary. Because of the influx of customers demanding the new big juicy cheap monster burger, the cooks were moving too fast and not cooking the burgers completely. The bacteria called E. coli killed four children and sickened 600, a majority of them under 10 years old. 178 other victims were left with permanent injury, including kidney and brain damage. Ten years later, mad cow disease, a short-lived media and public panic that reared its head in the U.S. with rampant stories of mad cows swallowing their own tongues to death. I wondered if it was possible to choke on my own tongue as my friends had told me it was on the playground. 
These stories of haunted beef, of the potential for personal and familial harm, contributed to the rapid rising of the popularity of chicken. But the burger remained a potent symbol of masculinity, with chicken considered a far girlier meat. Fast food advertising still plays on the strong association of meat, manliness, and the subconscious, in somewhat similar ways to those subliminal McDonald's golden breasts. An ad that ran for Arby's in 2018 hinted aggressively at the symbolism of breasts, too, but in a raunchier, less motherly way, showing women's hands holding two burgers as if against her chest with the tagline, We're about to reveal something you'll really drool over. Even more ridiculously, Burger King described their new hoagie-shaped burger as Long, juicy, and flame-grilled. And then had it hovering in front of a woman's red parted lips. In 2005, Carl's Jr. aired ads featuring Paris Hilton washing a shiny Bentley in her bikini, taking large, juicy bites from an enormous hamburger, with the ad ending in her famous trademark phrase, That's hot. It's likely true that eating meat and the proteins it provided, which began in hominid species about 2.6 million years ago, contributed more than anything else to the development of our modern brains. There isn't much doubt about this, about the importance of meat in the human story. But our relationship to meat is not what it was hundreds of thousands of years ago, not by a long shot. I decided while writing this episode that it wouldn't be fair for me to cover this topic if I wasn't willing to look directly at what I have ignored for pretty much my whole life. I watched those videos of the horrors of factory farming we all dread catching a glimpse of, sometimes shown to us in a flash by a PETA pamphlet left at a bus stop or a jarring scene in a documentary that you didn't expect. This time, I made a conscious choice to watch them for like an hour. I consider myself tough, sometimes to a fault, but I cried Big tears. My stomach hurt for hours, and at one point I felt like I couldn't breathe. It was all worse than I ever thought. Seeing it was so much different than hearing about it, and don't worry, I'm not going to describe it here. As we grow into adults, we all understand, at least on some level, that the animals we eat are somewhere far away, suffering under the conditions of ill-regulated factory farms. Lots of people would say that we just don't care, but I don't think that's the case. There are so many ways that help us forget that face-to-face we love these animals and we would hate to see them suffer. Most of us would stop someone from hitting a piglet or crushing a chick if we were present for it. Our pets are like our family members, and any idea of harm coming to them can bring even the manliest men into tears. But the truth is that pigs and cows are just as sentient, just as feeling, just as real as our dogs and cats. We aren't monsters. We are just naturally programmed to care about what's in front of us, what we see. Our evolution has not caught up to modern technology. Our brains aren't programmed, still aren't prepared for the haunting, magical, uniquely human knowledge that somewhere far away from us, there is suffering. 
Vegetarians and vegans who make up about 5% of citizens still have a pretty bad rep in America. Our culture has, by and large since the 1970s, characterized animal activists as militant, angry, unreasonable, often feminist lesbians, with male vegetarians and vegans being seen as effeminate, as lacking an essential quality of manhood, demonstrated perfectly by the alt-right slur, one I find quite darling, soy boy. I don't care what you guys have to say. I'll eat whatever I want to eat because I love meat. I love it. I love dowsing it in barbecue sauce because it's so damn good. I love cooking on the grill because that's what makes me a real man, among other awesome things. I will do this if I go to one of these vegan protests. I'm going to take me some ground beef. I'm going to take the meat and just throw it at him and just throw it at him and just watch him run like sissy cowards. More after this. And now back to the show. There have been several studies conducted around this anger and defensiveness we seem to have, with one demonstrating that nearly half the subjects in the group showed negative associations with vegetarians, mainly because the subjects thought that these people believed that they were better people than meat eaters. This assumed moral superiority and the assumed judgment against the subjects seemed to spur these meat eaters into negative associations. This led the subjects to demonize and ridicule their perceived enemy, these vegetarians. Humans, of course, naturally avoid what makes us uncomfortable. We reject thoughts that could lead to shame or guilt, which are two of the worst feelings ever. It's more comfortable to turn to anger, to demonize, to feel better instantly, and take back our position as right and moral again. All of us do this instantly every day in a myriad of ways, and one psychologist named Brock Bastian, who studies the psychology of meat-eating, said, quote, through the process of dissonance reduction, the apparent immorality of certain behaviors can seemingly disappear. Other studies have shown, pretty unsurprisingly, that conservative people tend to eat meat at a considerably higher rate than liberal people. Those with more conservative values were considered more fervent proponents of what the psychologists called the dominance hierarchy, with animals existing as the bottom rung in the social order of society. Liberals, in contrast, seem to have a more egalitarian opinion of the social order and put value on a more communal way of living. Regardless of political and social opinions, though, colonized America has never had a symbiotic, equal relationship to cows. They have existed from the very beginning almost exclusively to exploit. Maybe, on a larger scale, to question the place of animals is to question the dominance hierarchy itself, to question the supremacy of white masculine America and its traditions, to question the morality of the American pecking order, to question the very heart of what a colonized America has always meant. Like the natural ignorance around the factory farming industry, we all have a hugely difficult time actually facing this rising threat of climate change. There is nothing comfortable about floods, fires, droughts, hurricanes, and so much loss. 
By estimate, the meat industry accounts for about 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions. This includes the vast amount of land used to grow crops and feed the animals we eat, accounting for 127.4 million acres compared to the 77 million acres that actually grow food that us humans eat. 59% of all land on Earth is used for animal production. 60% of all mammals on Earth are being raised for eating, with 99% of those raised in factory farms. Deforestation for pasture space not only gets rid of plants and trees that actually absorb our carbon, but releases greenhouse gases that have become trapped in the previously biodiverse soil. 91% of all rainforest loss since 1970 is currently used for meat production. Accounting for all the resources that it takes to grow beef, it takes 660 gallons of water to make one hamburger. I know, I could rattle off these statistics all day, which, by the way, are insanely difficult to sift through. But one thing, regardless of the study, is clear. Our beef and all our meat and dairy comes with a cost we don't want to face. There's another victim of the Green New Deal. It's ice cream. Livestock will be banned. And so what are they saying? We're going to ban hamburgers and Americans are never going to have a barbecue and flip a hamburger you, again? No more steak. I guess government forced veganism is in order. We're starting to hear more and more of this conservative outrage over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her Green New Deal, with Trump and other outspoken alarmist pundits evoking the war on burgers, a similar straw man buzz phrase to the war on Christmas that we covered during the holidays. This new perceived American oppression was a direct response to the Green New Deal document that was essentially symbolic in nature. It lays out some of those terrifying truths around climate change and the changes we need to make and make soon. The document calls out the meat industry as a huge contributor to climate change, and apparently it's an affront. Ironically, much of the production of American beef rests on the shoulders of seriously mistreated, undocumented immigrants literally trudging through blood, easily replaced without compensation if they're injured or insubordinate. Just like Upton Sinclair once wanted us to see all the way back in the early 1900s. Donald Trump has recently led a number of publicized crackdowns on undocumented immigrants in slaughterhouses, those who've long been a part of the meat industry, making up now an estimated 25% of that workforce. And so we have a large portion of America demanding beef while condemning those who do the truly awful work it takes to hand it over. For me, writing this episode and working on this coming season has been a chance to confront the ways I process my own guilt, the ways that I myself ignore hard truths with my defense mechanisms. I don't necessarily disbelieve the realities of the world, but admittedly, I am prone to a fuck it mentality, that polishing the brass on the Titanic, but it's all going down, man, fight clubian, hopeless despondency. But two, I have to remember that the climate change that our nation causes, the climate change that on the most local level we contribute to, doesn't actually affect me the way it affects those in developing nations, those who also depend on meat to get enough nutrition in their diets. 
there are serious barriers to living a sustainable life. More elitist vegetarians and vegans don't always consider things like food deserts, places that don't have access to grocery stores with fresh produce. This reality is disproportionately true for low-income urban and rural communities. It's all very complicated, and there's no easy answer. There are definitely ways to argue in favor of meat. It's not because meat is the best choice, it's because of the system we've created. With all things considered, especially the privilege I have, I'm learning that flat-out denying climate change and doing nothing about it aren't that different after all. The changes I'm personally trying to make are pretty recent. Sometimes I make a choice that creates dissonance, one that I morally disagree with. But right now, I'm trying to stop and think, trying to fight against what the defense mechanisms in my brain are trying to do. I think there's value in that. Regardless of what I choose to do, this process helps me make a more conscious choice the next time. Of course, I'd love for you to eat less meat and dairy. It's the easiest way to start combating climate change on a personal level. Also, Americans on average eat three times as much protein as we need. So it's not that much of a loss. It's just the breaking of a habit. Where our dollars go matters. The politicians we vote for matter. And at the most base level, interrogating our own choices might be the most important thing of all. But when it comes to meat, my brain and your brain also have the extra task of fighting against our American stories. White Castle gave us our clean-cut white boys in their white-painted monuments. McDonald's gave us the happy clown handing out happy meals in a happy, painless world. But first, Buffalo Bill and the rest of rugged America cleared the way for all the cultural symbols and the obsession with beef that we have today. The manly cowboy has carried through the ages as dads poke at a circle of cow for 20 minutes in a silly apron under a bright blue sky. But rolled up in that wormy tangle of ground beef is a story of conquering, a story of nationalism, a story of taking what we want without feeling discomfort. This, essentially, is the beauty of America that my fellow camper was talking about. Let's head back for a second into the late 1800s, after almost all the buffalo had been killed and the Lakota people had been confined to reservations in modern-day South Dakota, the government eventually delivered herds of live cows. But when the Lakota mounted horses and hunted the cattle in the ritual way they once hunted the buffalo, the government was threatened by this show of power. After that, they only sent the tribe packaged meat from a nearby slaughterhouse. The tribe didn't accept it. Instead, they burned the nearby slaughterhouse to the ground. Fast forward to South Dakota's Standing Rock in 2016 as the media followed protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline carrying oil that was to run through indigenous land, endangering the local populations of people, animals, and water resources, and not to mention adding to climate change. As the indigenous from all over and their allies were locked in a standoff with riot police, something miraculous happened. You know, the only reason why we're moving back is because they're, they're armed. Batons, tear gas, riot gear, weapons, 
rubber bullets. That's what it takes for them to push us back. They carry weapons because they're scared. What does this land mean to you, this traditional land? This land means everything. Look at over there, all the buffalo. Look at all those buffalo. Look at all those buffalo there. And what was certainly a noble gesture, one that enraged Fox News as they declared a war on the eagle, Barack Obama made the buffalo the first national mammal of the United States the same year as those protests. It held a painful irony. While hamburgers have represented the dominance hierarchy so precious to colonial Americans' history, the buffalo represents what we cannot imagine anymore, a world that we take care of, one that takes care of us, one that we have dominion over, but we don't dominate. In the end, when there's nothing left to take, what will be the beauty of America? Turning away from reality doesn't make it go away, but it's true that our brains carry us through it with the maximum amount of comfort. But what is the cost of this comfort? And even more so, when all is said and done, what is the cost of our conquering? Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play. This was American Hysteria's premiere episode. Next time on the show, we'll be exploring the complicated history of American suburbia. On each episode of American Hysteria, we like to highlight a nonprofit that has to do with our episode. Today, the one we're suggesting you donate to is called One Spirit Lakota. The One Spirit mission, as stated on their website, is to help the Lakota meet the basic needs of their people and provide a culturally rich life for their youth. So if you want to donate, please head to onespiritlakota.org. That's onespiritlakota.org. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Como Studios. Voice acting by Will Rogers. With research assisted by Riley Smith and script editing by Miranda Zickler. If you love American Hysteria, we have a Patreon that you can donate to to help us keep going. You'll get ad-free episodes, extra episodes, and sneak peeks into things that you otherwise won't know about. You can find the link in our show notes. You can find us on social media, especially on Instagram at, at American Hysteria Podcast or on Twitter at AmerHysteria. Thank you so much for listening. And if you do start eating less meat, you soy boy, I hope no one throws ground beef in your beautiful face. Have a great week. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. 
How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.